Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey on Leadership, Franklin Covey's twice-weekly podcast all about how to make yourself a better leader in all aspects of your life. I am obviously not Scott Miller. My name is Brandon Stone, and normally I'm behind the cameras and away from the microphones, uh, acting as one of the producers of this show. Uh, But today, I'm lucky enough to have been asked to fill in as host to interview our special guest today. You obviously know him. His name is Scott Miller. He is normally the host sitting in this chair, and he is the author of the upcoming release, Career on Course, 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. Scott, welcome back to your own podcast. Brandon, it's a huge honor, kind of bittersweet, because I'm super appreciative that you moved outside of your comfort zone as the lead producer of this podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where you've been coaching me off camera for six years and 350 episodes. And now you uh, are exhibiting phenomenal hosting skills. So maybe there's a future for you both on camera and off camera. Regardless, I'm delighted to be on the receiving end today of your questions as we talk about my seventh book, Career on Course. Well, we've all heard the expression, those who can't teach. Maybe in my case, those who can't produce. I don't know. We'll see how this goes today. Hardly. Hardly. (laughs) Uh, Scott, everybody who watches this or listens to this podcast regularly knows you as the host. Uh, They know that um, you had a long career at Franklin Covey, but they may not know how you came into this position. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of background and tell us your story of how you got to this point? Thanks, Brandon. So I had an amazing 25-year career with Franklin Covey, the world's most trusted leadership firm. I started back in 1996, where I was actually selling our leadership, productivity, and trust solutions to K-12 school districts and universities, and then received a promotion and led the entire education division, went to the UK, London office for a year, came back, and spent six years in our Chicago office working with our corporate solutions on the enterprise division, leading a sales team. I then came back to headquarters and had a series of leadership positions where it culminated in me becoming the chief marketing officer for eight years and then the executive vice president of thought leadership for two years. Like you, I was kind of primarily behind the scenes, helping create branding and business development marketing strategies. And then my last year, I decided to take a bold effort and step out in front of the camera, wrote the first of what became seven books in five years, Management Mess to leadership success. Then I had the privilege of co-authoring with two Franklin Covey colleagues, Todd Davis and Victoria Bruce Olson, a Wall Street Journal bestselling book, again, for Franklin Covey. Everyone deserves a great manager that they now have a wildly popular one-day work session called The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team, based on that book that I co-authored for the firm. Went on to write four or five more books about mentorship, master mentors, and then this book now, Career on Course. Originally, I'm from Florida, born and raised in Central Florida. I worked for the Walt Disney Company for about four years, and now I am speaking and writing. I am, by day, a talent literary and speaking agent. I own, co-own a speaking agency with my partner called Gray Miller, and I spend much of my time now writing future books on new topics, and I'm passionate about careers and excited to dig into the book with you today. So you mentioned a couple of your past books. This is your seventh book now. Uh, 
and your first few were on the topic of leadership and management. You wrote about marketing. You've written about mentorship. So why the pivot at this point to writing about careers? Well, it's probably what everyone has in common. Up until now, my books have been kind of niche, like you said, about marketing, about management or leadership or mentorship. And although I liked going deep in those niches, as I thought about you know, where I am in my own career and the biggest value I could have to people, sharing my own successes and my own mistakes, I thought, gosh, careers is a topic that everybody has some association with, including if you're you know, a stay-at-home parent or you're retired or unemployed by choice or not by your own choice. You have people in your life that need to build their careers, whether they're avocation is their vocation, most of us spend more time awake with our colleagues than we do awake with our family members. And so if you're going to have a career, the odds are you're probably going to spend 50 years, you know, between the time you're early 20s to early 70s, depending upon your economic situation, you're likely going to have a 50-year career. So why not make the most of it? And I thought I was uniquely positioned after now nearly 30 years in the leadership business, having had a great career myself, not without some fits and starts, I wanted to take the tenets that I saw in all those that I had led, those that I had hired and coached, those that I had terminated. And after you know hundreds of interviews with hiring leaders, chief human resource officers, chief people officers, I felt like I had an opinion and some expertise on the topic. And so I poured it into this book, career on course. So Scott, I don't think this is a totally new passion of yours. Um, I remember a day about seven or eight years ago, I was fairly new uh, to the department that you were leading at Franklin Covey. Uh, and you scheduled some time on my calendar for a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Now I didn't report directly to you, and so I was thrown off a little bit about this. I didn't know you super well. I didn't know exactly what this meeting was for. And I was a little bit nervous, a little bit trepidatious heading in. Uh, but what happened was we sat down and you wanted to have a talk about my career plan, uh, what path I saw for myself, what my aspirations were. Uh, and you gave me some very concrete, uh, actionable ideas on things that I could do to take next steps in my career. And I came away from that conversation being really um, feeling that you were invested in me as one of your employees, as somebody who, you were somebody that I could look to for direction and somebody who was, uh, you know, interested in the different paths people's careers took and how to help them get there. Uh, so. I want to know, like, where does that passion come from in you, and why do you want to help people develop what you're calling an intentional career path? Well, one is, I think it's important that our careers don't define who we are. You know, I was single till I was 41 years old, so very much did my career define who I was. I, I, I'm probably embarrassed to admit that up until I was married and had a bigger purpose in my life with now three children, my wife and I are raising three young boys, I was pretty notorious for working my corporate title into any conversation, even in a personal setting. And if you were unfortunate enough, I might even work in my compensation or my stock options because my career defined who I was. And I think a lot of people that may be single 
or for whatever reason, your career defines you, not good or bad. It wasn't what I wanted the theme of my life to be. However, our careers drive our independence. In many cases, our true careers drive our self-confidence, our self-esteem. They drive our ability to provide for our families and for our future retirements and for those that we love. So I don't know anybody working because they just love it. We're working because we obviously have bills to pay. So why not make the best of it? And I think you, hopefully like many people that I've spoken to, are thinking more intentionally about our careers. One of the situations that I have found too often is that people neglect their careers. For some reason, they think it's their boss's responsibility or their human resource department's responsibility. No, your career is completely your responsibility. And I saw too many people abdicating that, blaming their boss, blaming the company, company culture, blaming the economy, when in fact, everyone needs to take full and complete ownership over their career. And to your question, I've seen way too many people live their careers haphazardly, accidentally, with too much serendipity and not enough deliberateness and intentionality. Now, listen, every great career has serendipity. Very Very few careers are a straight, linear line. But what I found almost universally is people were focused on what was next, like the next job, the next pay raise, the next promotion, and rarely were people focused on what's after what's next. What's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years look like? And so I did that exercise early in my career. I was about 24 years old. I sat down at a TJI Friday's restaurant in Orlando, Florida, on the back of the menu, which also was the paper placemat. I decided to write out my like 35-year career journey, starting with the ultimate job in mind. I thought that was going to be CEO. And then I worked backwards. Instead of forecasting, I backcasted. So if I want to be the CEO by the time I'm 55, I probably need to be in the C-suite. I probably need to be an EVP, an SVP, a VP, a director, a manager. I need to have some P&L experience, some supply chain experience, sales experience, foreign experience. And so I was very deliberate around creating an intentional career by illustrating it on paper because the odds that you're going to work a plan you have are much higher than working a plan you don't have. I mean, it's a phrase, right? Either have a plan or become part of someone else's. And I'll tell you the real motivation behind me writing this book, Brandon, Career on Course, was about five or six years ago, back when I was an officer at Franklin Covey, one of my colleagues, Jennifer Colosimo, who now serves as the president of the enterprise division. 75% of the firm's worldwide revenue is under her leadership. Jennifer said something that I thought was both insulting, but genius, piercingly accurate. One day she said, you know, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. I'm going to repeat that. You're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And I thought it was kind of insulting. She wasn't insulting me, just the phrase was, well, that's kind of gross. But as I thought about it, I thought, and it's piercingly accurate. It's absolutely true. For many of us, our careers are decided by our leader or our leader's leader, or worse, the CFO, because she or he needs to cut revenue to increase shareholder value. Welcome to public companies or any other number of reasons where you are typically disrupted or acted upon 
by someone else. There goes the adage, act or be acted upon. So it was really the motivation of Jim's piercingly insightful thought that so few of us are intentionally in control of our careers. I chose to dedicate multiple years of research and interviews and now this book to help people, regardless of what level you are in your career, take control of your career intentionally and not give it up to too much serendipity or to the whims of someone else. So beyond Jen's comment that served as sort of a paradigm shift for you about how careers are made, uh, you recently shared a story that I, uh, that struck me as very interesting about some late in life career advice that you received from your son's tennis coach. Would you be willing yeah. to retell that story for the audience today? I'm delighted, Brent, I'm delighted. So for those of you that know me or follow the podcast or may uh, be connected to me on social media, you know my wife and I uh, are mother and father to three young boys, right? I was a father late in life. I'm 56 almost now, and we have a nine-year-old son, a 12-year-old son, and a 13-year-old son. And my wife's absolute nightmare. They all have my energy and personality. So she really is married to four Scott Millers. But our oldest son, all three of our boys, by the way, are very serious tennis players. Well, last September, I indulged and took our oldest son, Thatcher, to the U.S. Open, the tennis tournament in Flushing Meadows, New York. And as a, a gift to him, we invited his tennis coach. And so he came with us. It was a fantastic experience. I'd never been to one of the four major tennis tournaments. And this is a young man that's uh, in mid-20s, right? Highly educated. I think he has like an undergraduate aeronautical engineering degree. He has a passion about dentistry. He's considered becoming a dentist. He's, so he goes on mission trips helping, you know, underprivileged or, you know, third world people have their teeth extracted. But he's also a tennis coach. He was a tennis player in college, and now he's a very competent tennis coach. And so we're in the car, the Uber, driving from Manhattan out to Flushing Meadows one morning in an Uber. We were having a conversation. I didn't know him that well. I knew well enough to invite him on a, a trip with my son and I. And I asked him, his name is Quinn, by the way. Uh, I said, Quinn... You know, as I look at your career, now again, he's been, you know, five or six years into his career. I said, you know you're going to become a commercial airline pilot. Sounds like dental care is an avocation. But right now, you're loving being a tennis instructor, right? You, you are a tennis coach to a lot of high-performing young adolescents and teenagers. You string rackets on the side. You're making a good living. I said to him, in kind of an innocuous moment, have you always chosen your careers based on what you love, what brought you joy, what gave you happiness? Now, I'm 56 and he's 26. And in the car, he looked at me as if he didn't understand my question. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, just what I said. Have you always picked your careers on what brought you joy and happiness, things you like to do? And he said, well, of course. Didn't you? And I thought about it for a moment. I said to him, no, no, I, I, I never picked my careers on what brought me joy or happiness. I didn't know that was an option. No one gave me permission. Parents never gave me permission to follow my passions. I never gave myself permission. No leader, no professor, no uncle, aunt, mentor, no one ever told me to pursue my passions. I just did 
what would pay the bills. I did what would allow me to take a vacation and build a 401k and provide for myself and my family and get a root canal. <laughs> um, I never knew that I could pursue what made me happy. Now, I don't mean it to be too heavy, but it was a watershed experience for me to realize no one ever gave me permission, including myself. Now, listen, I've had a phenomenal career at Franklin Covey. Hopefully, my maturity has exponentiated, having worked with great leaders, including Stephen Covey himself, for 25 years. But I don't know that I ever picked my career on what brought me joy and happiness. And I think the nexus, Brandon, is to be able to figure out, is what you're great at also what you should do for a living? I had the privilege a couple of months ago of having breakfast with Marcus Buckingham, the famous researcher, PhD behind Gallup's strengths movement. And Marcus said something profound at breakfast. He said, much of what's wrong with the world is people pursued careers based on what they were good at, not what brought them joy or mission or purpose. So I'm still on that exploration, but I'm delighted you let me share that story because I would say to people, when you can find the nexus between what brings you meaning and joy and happiness and what pays the bills and what people are willing to pay for, man, you've made it. Not everybody will have their avocation be their vocation. For some people, their careers are simply a, a means to an end, and I understand that. I wrote this book in the hopes that people could make better decisions about what type of career aligns with their values, what role they want their career to play in their broader life, and how to make sure that they take control of their career and not give it up to someone else. So the book's subtitle is 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. And I want to dive into a couple of those strategies, if you'll indulge me here, Scott. Uh, the first question I want to ask is, of those 10, which do most people end up abandoning? Well, I think strategy three I call study yourself. This really is about building self-awareness. This is about knowing what it's like to lead you what it's like to be on a team with you, what it's like to collaborate on a client call or visit with you, what it's like to work a trade show booth with you. Heck, for that matter, what it's like to be married to you or date you or live with you or live next door to you or play pickleball with you. I call it study yourself, Brandon, because I think to the extent people are at all like me, which my wife says very few people are, that we tend to study other people, right? We have our favorite authors. We have our favorite podcast hosts or host, Brandon Stone. We follow people's books and keynote speeches. We spend a lot of time studying people that we admire. By all means, we should do that. But my experience has been very few of us spend any time studying ourselves. Why are we the way we are? Why do we react? to certain personalities, in certain situations, in certain environments. Why are we the way we are? Now, most of the guests on this podcast would tell you it's because your parents and what they did to you or did for you or didn't do to you or for you. Forgive your parents at some point. Studying yourself is vital to an intentional career. And I don't think people spend enough time doing it. Here's a great example. I have a big personality. I talk loud, I talk fast, I'm a fairly dominant personality, some might even call aggressive. 
In fact, my voice level is typically right up here. This is a natural resting voice level for myself, including when I'm sitting in the car next to my wife going on a Saturday night date to a restaurant. My wife, Stephanie, will say to me, why are you talking so loud? You're like 18 inches from me. I don't know why I always have to talk this loud and I have to be the loudest in the room. I'm sure someone watching that is a psychiatrist knows why, but this has helped me in some ways in my career. It's been a handicap in other because, you know, I can bulldoze over people, not even know it. I can intimidate people. I can diminish their self-esteem and their self-confidence without ever intending to. And some people would call me a bully. Some people have experienced me as a bully, and I certainly don't want that. So I think of all of the practices that people should improve upon is number three, studying yourself. And in the book, I have exercises for all 10 of the strategies. In this one, I encourage people to pick a team of eight, eight, four from your personal life and four from your professional life and go out and ask them, what are the things that I do that delight you? What are the things that I do that annoy you? And the more you can share these with me, the more I can work on my blind spots and improve my career, improve my relationship. So long answer, short question, studying yourself, taking time to legitimately understand why you are the way you are. And is that working for you or against you? And is it working for or against other people? I'll tell you the best advice I've ever been given in my life was from Franklin Covey's 25 year CEO and now chairman, Bob Whitman. When I was the chief marketing officer, Bob once said many profound things. But he said the following, thinking is a legitimate business activity. I think in a world where everything is faster and more and more, we don't sit back and put our feet up on our desk and think about who am I and why am I? Is this working? And I really encourage people when you buy the book and read it, take the time to solicit feedback from people. What do I do that delights you? What do I do that annoys you? and then determine how to action on that. It's the most self-aware people that have the best careers. That's the biggest correlation I have seen over education, over work ethic, over anything else. It's how aware are you of what it's like to work with and for you, and how willing are you to change it and improve it? You know, I remember uh, getting some feedback on one of the ways that I work with other people and kind of taking it into account, uh, but it didn't really sink in until I was uh, at a trade show event and some things came up and I remember coming home and telling my wife, oh, my initial reaction when this obstacle came up at the trade show was this and it's not something I'm proud of, it's something that I've been told I do and I don't want to do any longer. Uh, and that moment of allowing that feedback to set in finally probably months or years later, has had a real effect on me. I would say it's a different topic about how to actually turn that into change, but it's definitely something that has been valuable to me in getting to know what my strengths and weaknesses are uh, in my career and how I do interact and work with other people. And, and Brandon, I, I love your self-disclosure there because we all have these challenges, right? I mean, we, we take ourselves probably pretty seriously, we take most criticism as a personal affront, but it's the most mature, influential people that are secure enough, they're confident enough, they're humble enough 
when someone gives you some feedback, not to dismiss it, deny it, deflect it, dispute it, but to realize, well, that took some courage. This person must like me. Now, some people will use that feedback to diminish you or to minimize you. They're the outliers. We never, ever play to the outliers. But if someone gives me feedback, I'm like any person, right? It kind of hurts and stings for a moment. And I usually say, wow, that kind of stung. But thank you. I appreciate you telling me that. That took some courage. Hey, can I ask you a question? When you see me doing that or saying that or acting that way, do you have any idea why I do that? Do I seem jealous? Do I seem insecure? Do I seem in over my head? By the way, all three, all three things are probably true at some point during the day, and I'm comfortable saying that. Th this is the key differentiator in people who have successful careers, is they don't take stuff personally. They, they, they differentiate when between someone is you know, attacking me or trying to you know, minimize me. And when someone is just trying to help me see my blind spots, because we all have them. Or helping, maybe helping themselves and trying to find a way to work better with you. Mm -hmm. And that can be a synergetic, I'll say, a synergistic uh, relationship synergistic, between the two. It. Yeah. Uh, okay. synergetic so, better. Okay. Uh, let's jump into another one of these strategies, Scott. Um, which strategy do you think most people start to address but then might neglect or entirely abandon later? I'd say probably strategy seven. I call it take the lead with your leader. Let me start with a controversial premise. Is The only job I know in the world where you're not trained to take is that of leader, right? You have to go to school to be a commercial airline pilot. You have to go to school to be an anesthesiologist. You have to go to school to be a phlebotomist, but you don't have to take any courses, have any certificates, any degree, any training to be promoted to be a leader. I've spent 30 years in the leadership business. I think I have some insight around this one, Brandon, is the majority of people that have become leaders of people in companies, they typically were promoted because they were the highest producing or the most competent individual contributor. What happens is the you know, the most talented designer in the art department becomes the lead art designer. Now she's leading eight designers. Or the most competent salesperson who met his or her quarters for four years and four quarters becomes the sales leader. When we know there's no correlation between being a great sales producer and being a leader of sales producers. Let's start with the premise that you've got a lot of great people that are bad leaders, not bad leaders who are bad people. Yes, there are some bad leaders who are bad people, but those, of course, I think are the outliers. This comes around to the strategy of take the lead with your leader, because just because someone has the title of director or team lead or chief or mayor or vice president or CEO doesn't mean they've been trained on how to lead people, on how to coach on how to offer constructive feedback, redirecting and reinforcing feedback. It doesn't mean that they're experts on developing relationships, which is arguably the number one competency all leaders need. You can be a genius designer. You can be a big, bold, charismatic visionary. You can read a P&L and get to the bottom lines of it in a matter of seconds, but if you can't develop relationships with people, you can't lead. So first and foremost, I generally say, 
be a little more gentle with your leader. Be a little more thoughtful around, have they been trained? Do they know what they're doing? What is their relationship like with their leader? What's changed in their world that they may not have thought to tell me about and lead up? Lead your leader. Take control of that relationship because nine times out of 10, if you're looking to get promoted inside your organization, you can't even apply for the job unless you have your leader's permission. That's the policy in every Fortune 5000 company I know. You also need to have them as your champion, not to get rid of you, but to release you and to be your referral to the hiring manager. There's so many reasons why you need to build a mutually beneficial relationship with your leader. Don't expect that they have the emotional intelligence, the maturity, the relationship skills, the diplomacy, the courage to provide you all the coaching and feedback you need. You may have to manage that. And the entire chapter in the book, Take the Lead with Your Leader, is teaching you how to do that in a variety of different situations, including with the leader that you may have an acrimonious relationship with, who you don't respect, who is in over their head. Many of those things are true. It doesn't change the fact that they are your leader and you may well need them for a promotion inside or even outside the organization. Okay, Scott. So 10 strategies. If I were to ask you what is the one that would be the most important for somebody to master, what's the truly must-do thing out of these 10 strategies? Oh, strategy one. It's why it's one for a reason. It's called know your professional values. Now, this one's gotten some controversy because I post a lot about it on social media. I actually think you ought to have two lists of values. Now, every value expert in America has coming, come out opining on it. I'm glad my TikTok and Instagram can be the town square for the debate on values. I, I, I don't care if you have two sets of values or two lists of values, but I do think Brandon, that everyone should have a list of personal values and a list of professional values. Doesn't mean they can't be put together as one list. But for example, I have a very articulated list of personal values. I learned this at Franklin Covey by our co-founder, Hiram Smith, sort of the inventor of the Franklin Planner. He was the iconic name behind the Franklin Quest company that went on to purchase and merge with Stephen Covey and the Covey Leadership Center. I was at a conference once and Hiram Smith encouraged all of us to um, name our values. Well, I was about 35 years old. I was single, living a great life. And I'm thinking my values, I don't know what I value. I don't know, patriotism, freedom, tennis, champagne, first class travel to Greece. I don't know, I'm not responsible to or for anyone. I didn't have any values. So I went and got some and I wrote them down. And I prioritized them. It took me about three weeks, but now here I am 20 years later, and I can tell you exactly what my seven personal values are. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. Philpal, P-H-I-L-P-A-L. I'm very clear what my personal values are. I don't think most people have codified and ranked their personal values. I make all my decisions in life in alignment with those values. But, and, I also have a set of professional values. My number one professional value, unabashedly, is to maximize my income. I work for a living. I have four human beings that are 100% dependent upon my work 
ethic and talent for braces and clothes and tuition and healthcare and food and haircuts and college education and emergencies, right? So I'm very comfortable saying to anyone and everyone that my number one professional value is maximizing my income. Number two is to work with and for a brand that I respect and I'm proud of, hence 25 years at Franklin Covey and four years at the Walt Disney Company. And my number third value is to work with and for people that I like and respect and who like and respect me. It's why, to my wife's horror, when we were married, we had 98 people at our wedding. And 65 of them were from Franklin Covey. Now, I'm about a decade plus older than my wife. And my wife turned to me and said, have you no friends? Our entire wedding is a corporate event. It's a corporate retreat for Franklin Covey. And that was funny until she realized my best friends were those who I worked with because that was a value of mine. To this day, they're still very dear friends of mine. And my point is, for people who don't have a list brand and of both personal and professional values that are different, you'll never know when they are in conflict. You'll never know when they're in alignment. I have countless stories of people that had careers that were spinning in circles. And what they realized finally was that their professional values were misaligned with their personal values based on where they were in their life, what role they were in, small kids, divorced, single, caring for a sick spouse, caring for an elderly parent. And so I am a fierce advocate of identifying your professional values and making your career decisions through that lens and then benchmarking it against your personal values to know if and when they're in conflict. And by the way, conflict amongst the two lists isn't always a bad thing. It just helps you understand is this professional pursuit the right thing for me in my life right now based on my primary personal roles and my personal values? And the first chapter of the book has extensive exercises on helping you articulate both your personal and professional values. Scott, I've worked with you long enough to know just how comfortable you are getting real and getting vulnerable about your shortcomings. Um, as we're talking about careers, I'd like to know what's the biggest mistake that you've made in yours and what lessons can you share from that? Oh, this is very easy. Uh, I made a major, I confused two concepts for the majority of my career. When I was the chief marketing officer, I was often called by the press to be interviewed on Dr. Covey's seminal book. This book has sold 50 million copies. It's the most influential personal development book in our generation. And the press would call me and want to interview me about the book called The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. And I would say, well, no, the book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, yeah, 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 it's the same. No, it's actually not the same. There's a massive difference between being efficient and being effective. One's not bad, they're just different. There's a time to be efficient and a time to be effective. And Brandon, my biggest mistake in my career was the majority of my career where I confused those two concepts. I'm a very productive, hardworking person. I am uber efficient. I get up every day at four o'clock in the morning. My work is done on my column by five. I write till six. I'm a dad until about 8.30. I'm a literary agent and author and keynote speaker until about three where I pick up the boys again and I'm a dad again. I'm a very prodigious producer of work. 
fact, most of my career success has come from how efficient I am. Getting things done, checking things off, moving on. I'm an executor. And when, like all of our strengths, when overplayed, they become our weaknesses because I treat everything like I do mowing the lawn, fast and good enough, including my relationships. All of the pain that I've experienced from being called into human resources lots of times, alienating people, having people misconstrue my intent with my technique was because I tried to be efficient with them. And to quote our founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. And so I finally have learned and am learning when to be efficient and when to be effective. And with people, you can only be effective. You have to slow down if you believe, like I do, that we're all in the business of building relationships. The best careers, the most fulfilling, intentional careers are those people that recognize I am in the relationship business with my colleagues, with my vendors, with my spouse, with my children, with my neighbors, with our clients, with my boss, with those who work for me. And I need to improve my relationships and understand when is it time to be efficient? Social media, email, washing the car, eating a sub on the way to a client. And when to be effective when I'm giving people feedback on their blind spots when I'm trying to learn a client's deep problems to see is our solution right, when I am working with someone on a performance issue or interviewing someone for a potential job or a stakeholder in a project. Your question was probably my biggest mistake. It was the length and time it took me to understand not just the differences between efficiency and effectiveness, but when to employ either. Scott, strategy 10 is called dig your well before you're thirsty. Uh, I think I have an idea of what you mean by that, but I'd love to hear it from you. What does that one mean? And will you tell us more about it? Sure. I think it's something like 80% now of all jobs are filled through a referral. This should horrify you in a good way, meaning you're likely not going to get hired because your resume was scanned in with the other 30,000 resumes this week and a certain number of words did the match. Yes, that happens 20% of the time, but the, you have to talk to recruiters and the vast majority of qualified candidates come from referrals. Your next career may not be with someone you know, but it will come through someone you know. And so everybody should be spending an appropriate amount of time on digging your well before you're thirsty. This phrase I've co-opted from the famous iconic author and speaker Harvey McKay, who wrote a book by the same name, is when you're laid off from your job, that's not the right time to start throwing out LinkedIn connections. And here's how I learned this. What I realized was that after about 22 years at Franklin Covey, I had a massive network. But they were all inside of Franklin Covey. Because as the chief marketing officer, I spent most of my time talking with our 150 salespeople and our 15 managing directors and the owners of our 75 licensees around the world and the executive team. 99% of my time was spent on internal stakeholders. And so here I am at 50 years old and thinking I might want to make a pivot and I don't know anybody. 
That's not true. I know a lot of people, but they all work at Franklin Covey and they're lovely people, but they probably aren't the ones that are going to find me my next career. And so I went out pretty aggressively and started building my network on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, LinkedIn. I started networking and writing books and writing columns and writing LinkedIn posts. And whatever your version of that is, is my, my battle cry to everyone is to dig your well before you're thirsty. I know a guy named David Araya who is one of the top hospitality leaders in the world, worked at some of the finest hotels in the world. And whenever he chooses to leave his organization, he has like six job offers in 10 days because he's so prolific in posting on LinkedIn, not asking for favors, but adding content and being abundant and sharing insights and making connections to and for and with people that can't help him until the time comes when he needs some help. And they come out of the woodwork for him. Dig your well before you're thirsty. Scott, what's the absolute best advice that you'd give someone? Let's say it's me eight years ago in a one-on-one -on -one with you. I was relatively early in my career. Or let's say it's a friend of mine who I'm referring to you who is at kind of a crossroads, whether they decide to leave their organization, start something new entirely, stick it out for the reliability, um, recognizing that you know, there are people from a wide range of professions from different points in their careers who might be listening to this, people who are just starting out, people who uh, may be first-time listeners. Recognizing that there's a broad range of people, if you were to give them one piece of career advice, what would that be? First of all, you're a great interviewer. I'm getting a little bit nervous about my longevity as the host of this podcast. So I hope you take my compliment as sincere. Uh, I think generally I would say beyond the 10 strategies in the book that I think are crucial to any intentional career, that is reminding yourself that you are in the relationship business and you're probably not as great at it as you think you are. But I, I'd argue it's the number one professional talent you get hired because of your degree or your certificate or expertise, right? You wouldn't get the job. Chemical engineers need a chemical engineering degree. Patent attorneys need to have passed the bar. But to keep those jobs, to grow and to, to um, thrive, you have to be great at developing relationships. And I think most of us aren't. And that's okay. Just recognize that there's improvement. Here's a good example. I'm a stutterer. I have a quite debilitating speech impediment that for 45 years I've worked on trying to conquer. I'm a fairly anxious person. I interrupt a lot. I can known to be a little bit um, of a know-it-all. I'll ask you 10 questions in one minute and I'll give you a chance to respond to any of them. I tend to live in the future, not in the past, but also not in the present. So I know this about myself. Because I am moderately self-aware, I know the areas of my relationship expertise that need to be improved. I'm uncomfortable with silence. So I'm always talking and therefore it comes across as me being a know-it-all or me not giving you a chance to talk. And so the more we recognize what our areas of growth are, the more we can build relationships that are healthy and trustworthy and mutually beneficial and abundant. The best advice I can give everyone is to search for your blind spots. Ask other people, what's it like to be my friend? What's it like to go out on a dinner date with me? 
What's it like to work on a project with me? What's it like to lead me? What's it like to be led by me? What's it like to be on the 90-minute Monday morning Teams or Zoom call every week? Find some people you trust in life that have your best interest at heart. And then don't dispute it, deny it, reflect it, deflect it. Take their advice, all with the intention of improving your expertise around building relationships. Scott, I know you have to come back to the studio to record a lot more episodes of this podcast. But other than that, what do you have in store? What's coming up next? Well, I'm launching Career on Course, obviously. I'm super passionate about that. I will be writing more books. I'm going to be hosting a podcast called Career on Course. Look for that to be coming out soon. Well, I'll be interviewing hundreds and hundreds of professionals deep into what is it like to be a massage therapist? What's it like to be a wind turbine technician? What's it like to be a chief operating officer or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist? So I'm going to have hundreds of episodes about what it's like to do this career so that everybody, whether you're in high school or college or whether you're looking at a career pivot, you can come to the Career on Course podcast and learn about all the nuances, everything you ever wanted to know about any career. This will be the podcast for you. I'm writing a few more books. I have a book on communication skills I'm writing. I'll be writing a book about power skills, you know, hard skills or soft skills. Soft skills are now called power skills. And so looking forward to hopefully many more interviews on the On Leadership podcast with Franklin Covey and uh, continuing to raise these three young sons of ours to become uh, productive, kind, and gentlemanly men in a not-so-gentlemanly world. Scott, thanks for coming today. Thanks for letting me fill in for you, and I look forward to getting back to my normal seat soon. I look forward to that too because I'm a little nervous about my backup plan, which is increasingly obvious from the CEO of Franklin Covey once he and his team watch this interview. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. Superb job. And we'll see you here for another episode next time on Leadership. Mm -hmm.